0: Chapter 8. Num, Small Beginnings. Why is it that we rip gold from the stubborn womb of Mother Earth several miles underground, but cannot afford a gold ring on our wives' fingers? Chenuani Farisani. Ramaphosa began work as a legal advisor at the Council of Unions of South Africa, Cusa, at the beginning of 1982. At the time... Unions were in upheaval as a result of a raft of post-Vihan legislation that was transforming the legal and political character of industrial relations. Like other union federations at the time, Couser had a talking relationship with business, and particularly with progressive managers like Bobby Godsell, who'd become Anglo-American's head of industrial relations in the late 1970s. High-level deliberation between labour and progressive business was a natural consequence of a shared desire to normalise industrial relations, a process whose conclusion, however, the two parties understood in very different terms. CUSA was often wrongly characterised as a black consciousness organisation. It was, in fact, a loose federation of unions lacking any common ideology or programme. CUSA leaders included supporters of the ANC, for example, Amos Masondo, who was to go on to become mayor of Johannesburg, and a number of Pan-Africanist Congress, or PAC, activists. Kuz's supposed black consciousness orientation simply reflected its membership. Young and black urbanized workers, few of whom were ANC or PAC cadres, but almost all of whom subscribed to the central tenets of black consciousness. A BC orientation was, however, reflected in Kuza's distinctive attitude to whites in leadership roles. Unlike its key competitor, the Federation of South African Trade Unions for SATU, Kooza reserved leadership positions for black activists. Vihan created an environment in which black unions could grow very fast. In looking for new opportunities to organise, Kuza did not want to create too much conflict with competitors like Fossatu. The two federations paid lip service to the principal one sector, one union, and they had already clashed because of an overlap in the metalworking trades. All the same, Kame identified the mines as an area into which Kuza must move, especially after Vihan's 1981 recommendation that recognition agreements should be reached on the mines and an orderly industrial relations process set in motion there. Mine workers, after all, were the most exploited workers in the South African economy. They were incarcerated in single-sex hostels, suffered high rates of illness, and were separated from their families for many months at a time. Underground work was arduous and dangerous, and miners suffered from unprecedented incidents of death and disability. Physical violence and racial abuse was everywhere, down the shafts and in the compounds. What is more, there were in excess of 750,000 workers on the mines, a potential membership that every union federation was desperate to tap. Yet, at the same time, nobody was sure about how to go about organising mine workers. Around half of the workers were migrant labourers from neighbouring countries. Divided by language from one another, and subdued by their fear of deportation. The rest of the workforce comprised poor South Africans desperate to earn the wages that might make rural or Bontistan life more tolerable. Deliberate ethnic compartmentalization of the workforce, using segregated hostels and de facto ethnic job reservation, made union organising even harder. Miners lacked even a shared language, communicating instead in Fanagaloo a grammar-free combination of zulu afrikaans Sisutu and Shangaan nouns and verbs. In addition, the mines presented a challenge of physical access. The compounds were massive and self-contained encampments, cut off from surrounding communities by razor-wire fences and quasi-militaristic in their organisation. Worker hostels were organised like military barracks. They could easily be made impenetrable to union organisers and mine managers had conventionally refused outsiders access to them. Workers had also been routinely denied permission to gather for union meetings. Despite the post-Vihon ethos of modernization projected by the progressive mining houses, the mine managers remained an untamed force beyond the control of their own head offices. Even though he had the personal backing of Harry Oppenheimer, Bobby Godsell spent many years as a virtual pariah even in Anglo's corporate offices in Main Street before he was able to mainstream modern industrial relations practices and resentment of his demands gradually faded. Yet, it was a quite different proposition to bring about change at the level of the minds themselves. English-speaking Main Street executives were often recruited directly from university and spent their besuited lives in offices and boardrooms. The mines themselves, however, were run by managers who had worked their way up through local management hierarchies. They were usually locals and almost all Afrikaners. They viewed Anglo's regional managers as wankers and the company's Johannesburg executives as super wankers. When Bobby Godsell tried to sell the benefits of unionization to Anglo mine managers in the Orange Free State in 1982, a colleague recalls, he was jeered and barracked by every mine manager present. The then Gold Division executive, Michael Spicer, remembers finding on visiting an Anglo mine during the late 1980s that the managers were building brand new hostels on precisely the pattern 45 Main Street had condemned almost a decade earlier. Outwardly deferring to their Johannesburg superiors, mine managers kept duplicate financial records that allowed them to create slush funds. They would pretend to show us the books and we would pretend to look at them, comments Spicer. There was always enough money somehow for country club memberships, for swimming pools and helicopters for the mine manager. The mine managers were preoccupied with the challenge of getting the gold out the ground, and their disdain for their seniors was in some respects understandable. Extracting gold, uranium and coal demanded a bewildering range of engineering, managerial and human skills. The complexity of deep-level mining is brought out well in this 1920s description of the five-kilometer-long crown mines. Envisage a line of buildings from here to Hyde Park Corner, five kilometres away, not 80 or 100 feet high, but, say, 2,000 feet high. The stopes in the mine may be looked upon as rooms in a house. Work, of course, is not going on in all the rooms at the same time, but in most of the big mines, ore is being extracted from various rooms at all sorts of floor levels over the lateral distance of three and a half miles from here to Hyde Park Corner. If we take the position we are standing in this room as the central level above and below which work is proceeding, we will have to look a thousand feet below our feet and a thousand feet above our heads over a distance of three miles in length with thousands of men distributed all over the area. Imagine the organization involved in lowering, in raising, and in distributing them to their various stations and in conveying the ore from these scattered points of attack to given central points for elevation to the surface. Accessing the gold-bearing ore required high-level planning and technical skills. Immensely deep vertical shafts were sunk in some mines more than three kilometres into the earth. From these shafts, horizontal tunnels were driven outwards so as to intersect with the thin, slanting seams of gold-bearing rock from below. The Chamber of Mines describes the challenges this raised as follows. Imagine a solid mass of rock tilted like a fat, 1,200-page dictionary lying at an angle. The gold-bearing reef would be thinner than a single page, and the amounts of gold contained therein would hardly cover a couple of commas in the entire book. It is the miner's job to bring out that single page but his job is made harder because the page has been twisted and torn by nature's forces and pieces of it may have been thrust between the other leaves of the book. The low quality of South African ore meant that many tons of rock had to be brought to the surface to extract just a few ounces of gold. The ore had to be blasted out of the earth using explosives pushed into hand or Jackhammer drilled holes, hauled along horizontal tunnels and then lifted up vertical shafts. In these frankly terrifying conditions, mine worker management was a heady mix of coercion, racial violence and incentives. Confronting vast technological and geological challenges and the need to drive down the costs of extracting ore to maintain viability... Mine managers had absolutely no wish to hear from the super wankers of Main Street that their worker relations were in need of an overhaul. The capacity of Godsell and his like to enforce their will on local managers who felt this way was consequently limited. Anglo might sign access or recognition agreements, but local mine managers could almost always ignore or distort them. Despite the obvious difficulties the mines presented to union organisers, the prize of hundreds of thousands of workers in a classically exploitative industry was too great to resist. Mine workers themselves were informally pleading for unions to make themselves available. The ANC-aligned South African Allied Workers Union, (SAWU) had been the first major union to respond to these demands in the late 1970s. Led by the late Thomas Sawu tried to recruit in a clandestine manner inside the hostels. Its failure to make headway was almost absolute. Fosatu was also quicker off the mark than Kusa in its attempt to organise the industry, launching a miners' union in 1981, a full year in advance of Kusa. Fosatu had delegated this challenge to an able and charismatic organiser, Moses Mosmayakisu of the Metal and Allied Workers' Union, Mawu, and created a metal and mine workers' union as the vehicle for its efforts. Mao had its own philosophy of labour organisation, believing that clandestine organization should proceed relentlessly and systematically at all levels until a critical mass of members had been assembled. At this point, the union would launch a recognition strike, which would combine a wage claim with a demand that the union be recognised by the employers. This is the approach Mayakiso decided to apply to the mines. Funds for Fosatu's initiative were sourced from Scandinavian trade unions and the new union secured legal representation through Halton Cheadle, a regular Fosatu advisor. Despite Mayakiso's talents and the organisational muscle of his union federation, the approach very quickly ran into insuperable obstacles. Physically impenetrable hostels proved resistant to this organising strategy. The control of mine workers' movements and the intelligence gathered by traditional mine organisers allowed hostile mine managers to curtail the growth of new union members. Attempts to recruit mine workers at home or on the buses that took them there also failed. It proved impossible to build up a critical mass of members in any of these substantial mines. Kousa's head, Piroshaw Kame, was not deterred by his floundering rival's inability to make headway. As strikes broke out across the industry in 1982, the need for organisation remained obvious. Kamei used the unrest to justify Kuz's move into direct competition with Fossatu. At Kluf, a goldfields mine, 9,000 miners went on strike out of dissatisfaction with a proposed pay rise. On the 4th of July, they refused to go underground. The mine management responded by threatening to dismiss the entire workforce. The dispute escalated into a pitched battle with police and mine security using heavy-handed violence to crush workers' protests. The informal leaders of the protest were eventually arrested and 2,000 of the workers were ultimately dismissed. It also happened that KUSA's national conference was scheduled for the 14th of July. This made it possible for a group of the Kloof strikers to appeal directly to the Cousa Conference floor and to make an impassioned plea for the help of the Federation in forming a new trade union. This approach could scarcely have been the spontaneous initiative Kame made it out to be. Neither was it the mine workers' first such appeal to CUSA. As Ramaphosa remembered in 1984, Cousa unions had been twice approached by mine workers looking for representation at the end of 1981 and the start of 1982, but the Federation did not have the know-how to cater for them. While Kusa enrolled some of them, they soon realized they were just not geared up for this type of industry. So the whole thing started being discussed in Kusa, and the unions within Kusa committed themselves to assist with the organization of a mine workers' union. In a wave of emotion, CUSA delegates resolved unanimously to respond to the Kluf workers' requests. But KUSA's decision faced numerous practical obstacles, the first of which was financial. International trade unions played a key and largely unacknowledged role in fostering and financing South Africa's black trade unions. Despite having a mandate from his conference, Kame's initial approaches to Scandinavian unions for finance were turned down primarily because they had already sunk substantial resources into FOSATU's initiative. Kame could only muster 28,000 rand, a large chunk of Kuza's modest overall budget of 150,000 rand, to launch the union. Fortunately, Kuza was later able to secure $250,000 from the Industrial Workers' Union, FNV, of the Netherlands. A second obstacle was political. Fosatu's leadership was extremely upset that its own initiative was in danger of being undercut by KUSA. Fosatu leaders were able to assemble an alliance with the ANC-aligned SACTU Federation on this issue, and together they tried to persuade the liberation movement to condemn KUSA's plan. Kame met with the ANC in London in 1982 and held a frosty and unproductive discussion. In the end, however... The ANC decided not to support Forsatu's demand that KUSA's initiative should be torpedoed, probably out of respect for the ANC's wider strategic goal of building a unified trade union movement that could one day become a thorn in the side of the regime. The field was now clear for KUSA. The question then became, could KUSA succeed where others had failed and organise the turbulent workforces on the mines? Ramaphosa had impressed his colleagues in his short time as a legal adviser. When CUSA took its decision to launch a union, Piroshaw Kameh had no doubt about whom to hand this problem over to. It was not a job that Cyril sought out. He was chosen by the CUSA executive as the person most likely to get the job done. The task facing the 29-year-old was daunting. Although he was acquainted with various mining house bosses from the late 1970s and through Kuzer's talking relationship with business, Ramaphosa knew absolutely nothing about mining. So unfamiliar was he with the industry that his first action on learning of his appointment was to visit a mine compound, where he bribed his way in, to see what a mine looked like. Next he went to the public library in Johannesburg to read about the representative body of the mine employers, the Chamber of Mines, and get an idea of the nature of the industry and its organisation. Cyril then went for a round of meetings at the mining houses, including Clive Menel's Angloval, where he was told that a black man could only enter at the rear of the building. Most importantly, he entered into discussions with Anglo's industrial relations head Bobby Godsell, who was on a personal crusade to modernise the giant's industrial relations. Ramaphosa identified a window of opportunity. He presented himself as a person of reason and moderation, who recognized that worker organization could benefit both bosses and union members. He expressed an interest in recruiting team leaders, the most skilled black mine workers who were excluded on racial grounds from holding blasting certificates, and in this way seemed to promise to ease Anglo's perennial problems of white wage inflation. Anglo was more than happy to see a competitor emerging to the white mine workers' unions and much keener to recognise an elite union than the mass organisational monster they believed Mos Mayakiso was openly trying to create. Gotzel was inclined to make life easy for Num, readily conceding access to anglo mines and later agreeing to recognise the union even when its very small membership did not really justify this action. Cyril had managed to get the union's foot in the door. Anglo would never get it out again. Anglo required that access should first be granted by the Chamber of Mines before the company would allow union organisation to take place on the mines. Ramaphosa went initially to talk to the industrial relations head of the Chamber of Mines, Johan Liebenberg, who was to sit across the table from Cyril in the negotiating chamber for almost a decade. Liebenberg had been at the chamber since 1975 and had become chief industrial relations advisor in 1976. He was therefore a coordinator of the mining industry's contributions to the Viharn and Rickett reforms and a key manager of industry players' responses to the wave of legislation and union organization that followed. Liebenberg was a pragmatist and a fixer qualities that were sometimes confused with profound cynicism. A chief negotiator's first challenge was always to hammer out an agreement on his own side. He then needed to build consensus between a wide variety of fractious constituencies, mining houses with distinct interests, cost structures and assets, so that he could negotiate with a clear mandate towards a set of agreed goals. Then he needed to wield a second set of instruments bullying and deceiving his union counterparts and deploying a capacity to read an adversary's reactions across the bargaining table. When a fresh-faced Kusa representative arrived for their first meeting, so was still 29 years old, the young man adopted an open and good-natured countenance. Liebenberg had become accustomed to talking to representatives of what he called Mickey Mouse unions, filing for recognition agreements. Turning them down very gently, Liebenberg would adopt a patronising manner, addressing the workers' representatives very slowly and deliberately. Confronted with the fresh-faced and attentive-looking youngster, Liebenberg assumed a benign expression of his own and began slowly, When the workers are wanting to be recognised by the Chamber of Mines, it does not happen in a hurry. It is a slow and serious matter. It is like a marriage. When a man wants to marry another man's daughter, he does not just go to her house. His uncles must first make a proper approach to the family. Cyril furrowed his brow, adopting the perplexed look of a rural simpleton. Liebenberg continued, if anything, more slowly. Now... What happens next? The two families must discuss the labola, bride price, and how it is to be divided. They may talk for many, many hours, even days. The man cannot just get straight into bed with the young lady. Finally, this was too much for Cyril. Unable to contain himself any longer, he smiled. Do you think we can talk about mining? The Chamber represented the largest 139 of the country's 800 mines, accounting for around 80% of all mine workers. All the big gold mining companies and most of the larger coal miners were members. Through technical committees for each mine type, the Chamber would hammer out a negotiating position. The Gold Technical Committee, for example, brought together the six major gold mining houses to an agreed mandate. The coal committee did the same with 10 representatives of the biggest miners. The negotiations between mining houses were always longer and more difficult than with the unions. Their purpose was to establish a strategy for the chamber in its union negotiations, setting out in very clear terms the mandate of the negotiators. Men like Liebenberg worked within very tight limits and could not exceed the agreed floors and ceilings of the pre-negotiation phase without consulting their principals. Once the annual negotiations with unions got underway, the Chamber's team faced off against the 11 recognized unions, primarily for white workers. The Chamber and the white unions were bitter adversaries engaged in a decades-long class conflict for their share of the wealth of the mines. Among the central demands of the most powerful union, the Mine Workers' Union, led by the irascible Aripolis was an insistence that black unions must never be given recognition. The goal was to avoid competition between skilled black and white labour because the monopoly over some kinds of jobs enjoyed by whites allowed them to earn inflated salaries. Ramaphosa recognised their window of opportunity once again. His union would pretend to be the black competitor to the white power that many of the chamber's members had long hoped to see. The historian of the NUM, Vic Allen, believes that Ramaphosa was in two minds about approaching the Chamber of Mines to sign an access agreement. In his view, Cyril did not want to compromise the independence of the union and feared that the chamber would set conditions for being granted access. But Cyril was also convinced that an access agreement would completely change the prospects of the union and he formally applied to the Chamber of Mines. He was right. When the first recognition agreements were signed, the union numbered a little over 20,000 members. Within two years, membership was more than a quarter of a million. While Ramaphosa was sweet-talking the representatives of the mining houses, he was also organising. The funds KUSA allocated to him were sufficient to buy a small combi van and to print leaflets encouraging unionisation. Cyril had an assistant, a former mine worker from Lesotho, Pusiletsu Saleh, and they were joined by dismissed mine workers willing to act as volunteers. Saleh had been a fingerprint expert working for mine's recruitment agency who had been trained as a computer technologist and was then told to train white workers in these skills. After that, his bosses told him he was now report to those whites he had just trained, and he came calling on Ramaphosa. Cyril gave him illicit num pamphlets to distribute, but Saleh and some of his friends were caught and summarily dismissed. When they went to tell Cyril at the KUSA offices, Ramaphosa smiled, ''Gentlemen, let us start working together. You are now the organisers of the union.'' Their initial strategy was crude, consisting mostly of throwing bundles of leaflets over mine compound fences. Direct contacts were at first very difficult. Workers were suspicious of Ramaposa. He was from Soweto. He was not a mine worker, and he was neither Sutu nor Trosa. Inevitably, they suspected him of being one of the detested salesmen who travelled between the mines trying to sell insurance to the mine workers. After one month, however, fate intervened in the form of Alfred Mpalele, a personal assistant at Western Deep Levels Mine. Mpalele's family lived in Soweto, and he would visit them whenever he could. Vic Allen tells the story. He invariably walked from his hostel in Carltonville to the main Clarksdorp to Johannesburg Road, where he would flag down a car for a lift to Soweto. He did that on Friday evening towards the end of August, and as he climbed in, he recognised the driver as Cyril Ramaphosa, whose picture he'd seen in a northern Transvaal newspaper during the student protests in the mid-1970s. A conversation began and Ramaphosa asked who he was and where he worked. When Ramaphosa learned he was a mine worker, he told him that he was trying to organize a union for black mine workers. Mpalele said he was interested and told him about the course he was attending where 30 men had recently discussed the very same topic. Mpalele was attending a training course for black personnel assistants, and they had discussed together how to form a union. Cyril sent him on his way with a bundle of union application forms, having agreed to meet up with him again in Soweto. The first person Palele met on his return to the mine was James Motlatsi, a fellow personnel assistant who was very excited to hear about Ramaphosa's initiative. Motlatsi and Ramaphosa met up a few weeks later and formed one of the most important partnerships in South African politics in the 1980s. James Mutlatsi was an unlikely partner for Cyril Ramaphosa. He came from Lesotho, where he had been radicalised as a child by opposition to the injustices meted out by the chiefs. At the age of 12, he rejected the practice of presenting tribute to local chiefs. If one wished to build a house, one would have to cut 8 to 10 bundles of the special grass and present the same amount again to the chiefs. They were bloodsuckers. Relishing the memory of his first protest action, He comments, I still remember burning the reed bundles at night. He left Lesotho during the 1970 state of emergency when the anti-chief party, for which he was an organiser, was cheated out of an election victory. Like many other subjects of Lesotho, Mottlatsi went to work underground on these South African mines. He described his experiences as going from the frying pan into the fire. I realised the problem here was even worse than it was there. Motlatsi was not especially impressed with Cyril in their first meeting. He was young. I could see he was even younger than me. Although he spoke very well, he seemed nothing special. Like other mine workers, Motlatsi could not understand why Cyril was interested in looking after the interests of miners. There were no mine workers from the townships. They were from Lesotho or rural Transkei or from Mozambique. There was nobody interested in looking after them. I I asked myself, why is he so interested in finding solutions to the problems of mine workers? Mutlatsi credits himself with inventing the tactic that he and Cyril were to deploy to such effect. They concentrated all their early energies on the mine's own training centres. Anglo-Americans Gold and Uranium Division had a divisional training unit at Western Deep, through which senior black workers regularly passed. Motlatsi's insight was that he and Cyril could extend their influence across the whole of the Gold Division through a relatively small number of senior workers who passed through this unit. The personnel organisers possessed the organisational skills and relative freedom of movement that it would allow them to spread the word about the union. The union was formally launched at the end of August 1982 in Hamanskral. North of Pretoria, most of its constitution was simply copied from that of the high-profile British National Union of Mine Workers. None of those present at the meeting was aware that there had been a great 1946 strike led by the African Mine Workers Union, whose name they might otherwise have resurrected. Instead, after five hours of deliberation, they provisionally chose the name National Union of Mine Workers (NUM) rejecting Cousa's insistence that the black character of the union be reflected in its title. This dispute exacerbated tensions between Ramaphosa and Cousa's National Executive Committee. Num rapidly outstripped other Cousa affiliates in size, and Cyril's flair for publicity made him better known than the federation of which Num was a part. Jealous of Num's success, his comrades tried unsuccessfully to rein Ramaphosa in, although at one stage that year he formally tendered his resignation, and Pirashor Kameh had to protect him against the sniping of Kuza's old guard. Cyril was especially stung by one barb. You are an intellectual, and you intellectuals always want to have positions so that you can have power. Soon after the launch, on the 13th of October, 1982, An access agreement with the Chamber of Mines was signed. While this was a significant step, committing employers to allow the union access to potential recruits, many mine managers remained combative opponents of the union. These managers continued to prohibit mass meetings, to intimidate organisers and to spy on activists, and they banned the distribution of union literature. Such restrictions placed a premium on organisation through close personal networks. A recruited minor would be set a recruitment target of his own, bringing on board friends and acquaintances who would then be set targets in their turn. Access agreements included tight controls on times of access and barred entry to hostels, distribution of non-approved pamphlets and singing of organisational songs. However, access was vital to remove what Ramaphosa saw as primarily psychological barriers to recruitment Mine workers were conditioned by overarching systems of control on the mines not to engage in any activity not explicitly sanctioned by the mine bosses. The first question mine workers invariably asked NUM organizers was Do you have permission to do what you are doing? Access agreements broke the psychology of deference by allowing workers to sign up without putting their jobs on the line. An office in the hostel was an enormous advantage, even if it was near the hostel manager's office, because workers believed they had some measure of protection from victimisation and arbitrary dismissal. The union received a further boost in October when 58 Kloof miners arrested during a strike were released after NUM intervened with a lawyer. This simple step exposed the sloppiness and arbitrary nature of mine manager's dismissals, and opened the eyes of many ordinary workers to the potential power of a union. Pressing home his gain, Ramaphosa hired combis to take the workers back to their mine, where he demanded that the management reinstate them. A surprised management team complied. Cyril played the media to leverage the success further in advance of the inaugural Congress of the union set for Clarksdorp on the 4th of December. When more than a 1,000 delegates assembled for the Congress, they had some tangible achievements behind them. NUM had 14,000 members in nine branches and more than 25 active organisers bringing in new recruits. However, the branches were concentrated in Anglo mines in the Orange Free State and the West Rand, and the membership of 14,000 had to be seen in the context of a 1972 total mine workforce of 766,000. Ramaphosa characteristically devoted much of the Congress's time to the Constitution. Clauses were translated into Tosa and Susutu so the delegates could debate its provisions. The meeting ratified the name NUM and decided upon a structure of shaft stewards' councils and committees to promote accountability in the branches. In elections that were to shape the Union across the following decade, The delegates chose a national executive committee to run the union between conferences. The NEC nominated Cyril Ramaphosa as general secretary, the only full-time official in the union. Once Cyril was installed, elections were held for the part-time positions of president, vice-president and treasurer. The little-known Ishmael Tulu was elected treasurer and James Mutlatsi was unsurprisingly elected president although he claims today that his nomination was a great surprise. He was well known to many delegates from his travels around the country as a hawker selling blankets and militant ideas to Sutu miners from the back of his van. The big surprise of the Congress was the election of the unknown Elijah Barai as vice-president. Barai was a Kosa speaker from Cradock in the Eastern Cape and brought an ethnic balance to the leadership that reflected the growing proportion of the workforce made up of contract workers from the trans Equally important, Barai was a long-time ANC supporter. While the ANC had a deep presence in Craddock and was not destroyed by government repression, Barai was probably the first ANC member Surah Ramaphosa had knowingly met. The union was on its way. On the 1st of January 1983, NUM was formally established. Ramaphosa immediately sought out links with wealthy trade unions in Scandinavia, Britain and the United States, primarily to establish the financial independence of NUM. During a brief visit to the United States in 1982, he also visited Stanford University in California, where he made a major impression on Professor William B. Gould IV a scholar of labour relations. Sauru Ramaphosa, NUM's leader, visited Stanford University in 1982 and talked with me about his vision and goal of organising the workers who live under this migrant labour system. He spoke of workers who are separated from their families, who are alone, who exist under a policy where separation on the basis of tribe is supported and divisiveness among workers is promoted. He spoke of a system where the worst criminality can flourish, where people by definition are degraded. He said his people are not accorded the right of free association, even the right to live with one's family. He had a vision of working with this new union. He was a young, fully educated lawyer. Listening to him speak at Stanford in 1982, one could not be criticized for thinking to oneself, what a fine man, what a worthy goal. Too bad that it simply cannot succeed. On the 9th of June, 1983, NUM signed a memorandum of agreement with the Chamber of Mines that allowed the Union to negotiate on mines where it was recognised. For the Chamber's chief negotiator, Johann Liebenberg, this formal recognition agreement marked the real start of the NUM. Ramaphosa's strategy of quiet negotiating was succeeding. There was no obligation on the Chamber to recognise NUM, Yet most of the mining houses, led by Anglo, now accepted that it made sense to establish a sound relationship with NUM at the outset. If the union grew a little faster in consequence of recognition, they were willing to bear that cost. The mining houses also believed that they could destroy the union if it got out of hand. At this stage, NUM could not survive a frontal confrontation with the mining houses, it lacked the organisational and financial resources to last out a strike of any length. The 1983 wage negotiations that soon got underway had a largely ritual significance. The bargaining strength of the chamber was such that it was certain to get its own way on the headline wage increases. It could just impose whatever figure it had decided. ramaphosa understood Nom's weakness. At the time... Unions were not sophisticated in their approach to negotiation. We used to go more on gut feeling than on the force of the arguments we'd put forward at an intellectual level. At times, we would be caught with our pants down because they had the, all the facts. They were smooth, they were sophisticated, and they had the resources. All we had then was just a sense of injustice and a mission to improve the lot of the workers and raw power in the sense that the workers were there. So intellectual persuasion was not one of the key factors that we built into the way we did things. At times in negotiations, we would make serious mistakes and they would point this out and they would in a way be laughing at us, be gleeful and all that. For the mining houses, num seemed to be everything that they had hoped. But Ramapoza and Motlatsi, were gradually building the organisational and financial strength of the union. Meanwhile, Num's tentacles were spreading, largely unseen. The union was growing quietly, but spectacularly.